In episode 79, I talked about the destruction of China between 1839 and 1979. So go back in there and check that one out. In this episode, I want to talk about rising China, the years 1979 to 2022, which is about now and beyond if possible. The 1978 constitution was the People's Republic's third constitution and was adopted at the first meeting of the 5th National People's Congress on the 5th of March, 1978. This 1978 constitution was the first constitution in the PRC to touch explicitly on the political status of Taiwan. It said that Taiwan is a part of China and said that the PRC must liberate Taiwan and finish the great task of reunifying the motherland. However, in 1979, the PRC dropped the liberation stand and opted for peaceful reunification instead. Notice the usage of the word China in the 1978 constitution. The 1982 constitution mentioned that Taiwan is a sacred part of the territory of the People's Republic of China. I'm going to get back to Taiwan later in the episode, but just keep that in the back of your mind. This constitution still suffered from the backdrop of the just-gone-by cultural revolution. Revolutionary language was still persistent, although the slogans were somewhat gone. The 1978 constitution actually survived for four years and then was superseded by the 1982 constitution, which actually is the current constitution. Deng Xiaoping, the paramount leader of the People's Republic of China, PRC, he was around from about 1978 to 1992 as supreme head. Deng gradually rose to supreme power and led China through a series of far-reaching market economy reforms, earning him reputation as, air quoting, the architect of modern China. He was ultimately, probably ultimately, responsible for China becoming the world's second largest economy by 2022. He had inherited a country beset with institutional disorder and disenchantment, with communism resulting from the chaotic political movements of the Mao era. Deng started Bulong-Fancheng, a program that gradually brought the country back together. Bulong-Fancheng literally meant eliminating chaos and returning to normal. If you want to know what the chaos was, scroll back to episode 79. Deng is very important. He had some really, really far-reaching reforms in mind, and he implemented those reforms, and very, very effectively. As early as 1977, the year 1977, to about 1979, he resumed stuff like the National College Entrance Examination that had been stopped and interrupted by the Cultural Revolution for a decade. Deng also initiated the reform and opening up of China itself and designated special economic zones, including Shenzhen. On the 1st of Jan, 1979, the PRC established diplomatic relations with the United States, and Deng became the first Chinese paramount leader to visit the U.S. in August 1980. He met President, U.S. President Jimmy Carter. Deng 
embarked on a series of political reforms by setting constitutional term limits for state officials, and other systematic revisions were incorporated into China's third constitution. In the 1980s, Deng supported the now controversial, or even then controversial, well, the always controversial, one-child policy to cope with China's overpopulation crisis. He helped establish China's nine-year compulsory education and launched what became known as the 863 Program for Science and Technology. Deng also proposed the One Country, Two Systems principle for the governance of Hong Kong and Macau, as well as future reunification with Taiwan. The reforms carried out by Deng and his allies gradually led China away from a planned economy and from Maoist ideologies and opened it up to foreign investment and technology and introduced its vast labor force to a global market, thus turning China into one of the world's fastest growing economies. He was eventually characterized as the architect, the architect of a whole new brand of thinking, combining socialist ideology with free enterprise, dubbed socialism with Chinese characteristics. Despite never holding office, as it were, official office, as either the PRC's head of state or head of government, nor as the head of the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party that is, Deng is generally viewed as the core of the CCP's second generation leadership, a status enshrined within that party's constitution. He was criticized, though, for ordering a military crackdown on the 1989 Tiananmen Square protests. Not a policy, but certainly a crucial event in China's history. I feel this one event was a turning point. It forced the government to reflect. To understand something needed to be done, they saw the Warsaw Pact fall apart. Then two years later, they would see the USSR collapse all by itself. This is something that they did not need in China, not after 140 years of destruction. Now, I want to dig a little deeper in some, into some of these policies because they are so monumental and deserve deeper attention. Let's start with the 1989 Tiananmen Square protests. These protests were student-led demonstrations held in Tiananmen Square in the capital, Beijing, during the year 1989, in what is known in some other countries as the Tiananmen Square Massacre. I actually remember watching this whole event unfold on television. It made headline news. Some iconic images circulated in Western countries. The one that particularly stands out is of a guy with a suitcase standing in front of a tank. These protests started on the 15th of April and were forcibly suppressed on the 4th of June when the government declared martial law and sent the People's Liberation Army, or PLA, to occupy parts of central Beijing. Estimates of the death toll vary from several hundred to several thousand, with thousands more wounded. Troops armed with assault rifles and accompanied by tanks fired at the demonstrators and those trying to block the military's advance into the square. 
This was, by the way, five whole months before the Berlin Wall came down in November 1989. It's also very important to keep that time difference in mind. Those months are important. It happened in China first, even though it was brewing in the Soviet Union and in Eastern Europe. The actual activity of protest happened in China first, and it was suppressed in China first, and it was suppressed successfully. What was more important from the Chinese perspective was that they learned from the protests and they reacted accordingly so that what happened to the USSR in Eastern Europe did not repeat itself in China. I've mentioned the term socialism with Chinese characteristics before. And Deng was part or the critical force of that reform movement. Now, what is this? This was, is a bunch of political theories and policies of the CCP that are seen as representing Marxism-Leninism adapted to Chinese circumstances and specific time periods. It's very adaptable. For example, Xi Jinping's thought is considered to represent Marxist-Leninist policies suited to China's present 2022. Now, Deng Xiaoping's policy was suited to his time, and his theory was relevant for the period it was formulated in. So in short, what this means is that other than a complete fungibility of ideology, this is a hi-fi way of moving away from communism to a mix of capitalism and socialism underwritten by authoritarianism. And I want to quote Deng in his own words here. It is a long one, so bear with me. And now I'm going to quote Deng Xiaoping directly. What is socialism and what is Marxism? We were not quite clear about this in the past. Marxism attaches utmost importance to developing the productive forces. We have said that socialism is the primary stage of communism and that at the advanced stage, the principle of each according to his ability and to each according to his needs will be applied. This calls for highly developed productive forces and an overwhelming abundance of material wealth. Therefore, the fundamental task for the socialist stage is to develop the productive forces. The superiority of the socialist system is demonstrated in the final, final analysis by faster and greater development of those forces than under the capitalist system. As they develop, the people's material and cultural life will constantly improve. One of our shortcomings after the founding of the People's Republic was that we didn't pay enough attention to developing the productive forces. Socialism means eliminating poverty. Pauperism is not socialism, still less communism. End quote. One of Deng's other big reforms, as I have mentioned earlier, was one country, two systems. To remind you, one can suggest that one country, two systems is basically describing a constitutional principle, the governance of Hong Kong and Macau, and possibly also Taiwan. Now, I would contend, however, that effective 2020, the one country, two systems is no longer in play. It's one country, one system since 2020. The opening up of China was ultimately, unlike one country, two systems, a lasting and impactful legacy. 
a hallmark, if you will, of Deng's reforms in China. It's a huge legacy and ultimately helped in taking millions of people out of not just poverty, but out of abject poverty. The reforms started as just debates and ideas that existed inside the Chinese Communist Party that ultimately led to a session of hearings on the 18th of December, 1978. It was during the Bulon and Sheng period. Reforms lasted all through the 1980s, only going into stagnation after the military crackdown of 1989, that's the Tiananmen Square protests, but were again revived after Deng Xiaoping's Southern Tour in 1992, more on the Southern Tour later. You need to understand the significance of these reforms. Executed to near perfection and learning all the way from the 1989 protests, the collapse of the USSR, the 1990s Western-imposed capitalism on Russia and its failure, the role of Western NGOs on foreign coups, foreign control of the digital world, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, maximum mass economic sanctions and embargoes on other countries, and the global financial crisis, among other things, the Chinese learned and adapted. In 2020, China overtook Japan as the world's second largest economy by nominal GDP, and in 2014 overtook the U.S., by becoming the world's largest economy by PPP. PPP being purchasing power parity. So what were these reforms? After the death of Mao Zedong, the Communist Party leadership decided to turn to the market-oriented reforms to salvage its stagnant economy. The government carried out the market reforms in two stages. Stage one, in the late 1970s and early 1980s, involved the decollectivization of agriculture, the opening up of the country to foreign investment, and permission for entrepreneurs to start businesses. In essence, rather than socialism with Chinese characteristics, it was time for capitalism with Chinese characteristics. The second stage of reform in the late 1980s and 1990s involved the privatization and contracting out of much state-owned industry. The 1985 lifting of price controls was a major reform, and the lifting of protectionist policies and regulations soon followed, although state monopolies in sectors such as banking and petroleum remained. The best way to summarize the Deng era of economic reforms is to state the slogan of his era. Time is money, efficiency is life. After the 1989 Tiananmen Square protests, Deng Xiaoping stepped away from public view and pretty much retired. Power passed to the third generation of leadership, led by Jing Zamin. However, owing to the Tiananmen Square killings and protests, as I have mentioned earlier, reforms and opening up programs went into stagnation during the early 1990s. And Jing, supported by left-wing conservatives, was not doing enough to continue the reforms. In the spring of 1992, Deng made his very famous tour to southern China, as I've mentioned earlier, and is actually a critical point in the history of modern China because it saved China's economic reform as well as the capital markets. You see, Shanghai Stock Exchange and Shenzhen Stock Exchange were on the rocks at the time, and ultimately it preserved the longer-term stability of society. 
Zhang eventually sided with Deng and publicly supported the reforms at opening up programs once again. Economic growth achieved a sustained high rate by the mid-1990s. Jing Zemin's macroeconomic reforms furthered Deng's vision for capitalism, socialism, whatever you want to call it, with Chinese characteristics. A big focus now turned to be technological advancements, such as space exploration and other technological and heavy industry investments. This was also the age when social corruption speeded into the system and started to become mainstream. Jing's years between 1989 and 2002 also saw massive infrastructure projects undertaken. However, it was in the 1990s that China's foreign policy also started to become more assertive and confident. In November 1991, China joined the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation. The 1990s saw the peaceful handover of Hong Kong and Macau by the United Kingdom and Portugal to China. Jing Zemin and U.S. President Bill Clinton exchanged state visits, but Sino-American relations took a very sour turn at the end of the decade, especially after a crisis in the Taiwan Strait. Then, on the 7th of May, 1999, during the Kosovo War, U.S. aircraft bombed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. The U.S. government claimed that the strike was due to bad intelligence and false target identification. Highly unlikely. Then, in 2001, a U.S. surveillance plane collided with a Chinese fighter jet over international waters near Henan, inciting further outrage within the Chinese public. Then, finally, after a decade of talks, and despite all these issues between the U.S. and China, China was admitted into the World Trade Organization in 2001. The same year also saw the establishment of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, or SCO. Remarkably, the private sector grew amazingly and accounted for as much as 70% of China's GDP by 2005, even though China remained an authoritarian system. And of course, these companies are often at the mercy of CCP rules, regulations, and policies. And kind of just like everyone else in all other countries, all over the world, every country has to deal with that. But in China, it was significantly more. Hu Jintou succeeded Jiang as the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party in November 2002. Hu and President Wen Jiabo inherited a China wrought with internal social, political, and environmental problems. One of the biggest challenges he faced was large wealth disparity between the rich and the poor, for which discontent and anger mounted to a degree that wreaked havoc on the Communist Party. Furthermore, the cronyism and corruption that I've mentioned before plagued China's civil service, military, educational establishments, judicial and medical systems, and sought to destroy the country bit by bit. There was something called the Eight Honours, Eight Disgraces, and it was in whose time that these eight honors, eight disgraces were released. Now I'm going to tell you what these eight are. Number one, honor to those who love the motherland and shame on those who harm the mother. Two, honor to those who serve the people and shame on those who betray the people. Three, honor to those who quest for science and shame on those who refuse to be educated. Four, 
honor to those who are hardworking and shame on those who indulge in comfort and hate work. Five, honor to those who help each other and shame on those who seek gains at the expense of others. Six, honor to those who are trustworthy and shame on those who trade integrity for profits. Seven, honor to those who abide by law and discipline and shame on those who break law and discipline. And number eight, honor to those who uphold pain, living, and hard struggle and shame on those who wallow in extravagance and pleasures. In my humble view, and I am just a random idiot on the internet, but in my view, this was the start of increased Chinese nationalism and the modern Chinese identity. It would be the foundation for future Chinese diplomats to assert themselves on the world stage and for individuals and citizens of China to feel part of a bigger modern whole. Hugh's time in office saw slow and softish foreign policy. Throughout the tenure, China's influence all over the world, Africa, Latin America, Asia, anywhere, as well as the West, increased substantially. He also sought to increase China's relationship with Japan, which he visited in 2008. That being said, Hughes' critics argue that his government was overly aggressive in asserting its new power, overestimated its reach, and raised the ire and apprehension of various neighbors, including Southeastern Asian countries, India, and Japan. Similar policies are also said to be provocative towards the United States. Relations with giant neighbor Russia also suffered at this time. It was the slow start of wolf warrior diplomacy. Hughes' political philosophy during his leadership is summarized by three slogans. A harmonious socialist society, domestically, and peaceful development internationally. The socialist society, aided by the scientific development concept, sought integrated sets of solutions to economic, environmental, and social problems, and recognized a need for strictly cautious and very gradual political reforms, nothing fast. What emerges from these philosophies in the view of few is a country with systematic approach to national structure and development that combines dynamic economic growth, a free market energized by rigorous non-public sectors, heavy-handed political and media control, personal but not political freedoms, and concern for the welfare of all citizens, including stuff like cultural enlightenment and a synergistic approach to diverse social issues and blah, 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 blah. And this led it Hughes' vision to a harmonious socialist society. Very importantly, Hugh led China through the 2008 to 2009 global financial crisis, and he led China through it very successfully. Ultimately, it increased China's international standing and it increased China's global economic powers. On the 15th of November, 2012, Xi Jinping was elected to the post of General Secretary of the CCP and ultimately became Supreme Leader. This made him, formally and informally, the paramount leader, the 
first to be born inside the People's Republic of China. In an odd and weird turn of events, a few months before his ascendancy to the party leadership, Xi disappeared from official media coverage for several weeks, starting on the 1st of September 2012. On the 4th of September, he cancelled a meeting with top US, Singapore and Russian officials. It was said that Xi effectively went on strike, apparently in preparation for the power transition in order to install political allies in key roles. Some US media outlets speculated claims that he got into some physical fights and was beaten up and took a couple of people down. Anyway, Xi vowed to crack down on corruption almost immediately after he ascended to power. This campaign started in the highest ranks of the government, the party and in business. Alongside the anti-corruption movement, and not to be conflated with it, has been a large-scale censorship policy inside of China. A probably deliberately leaked document in 2013 suggested that Xi had a particular distaste for some Western values. The plan was to censor or control or contain the following seven things, but I want to add an eighth thing at the end there. So anyway, starting with thing number one, constitutional democracy, which includes stuff like multi-party systems, the separation of powers, general elections, and judicial independence. He hated that. Secondly, he also hated stuff like universal values, which in real terms means Western values imposed on everyone else, including China. Three, civil society. He thought that the notion that the individual's rights are paramount rather than collective rights are rubbish. Four, pro-market neoliberalism. That referred to libertarian economic values and globalization was and is not a big fact. Fifthly, media independence. As Z was especially hostile to Western ideas of journalism and the notion of a free press that could criticize government, Z did not like that kind of independence. Six, historical rewriting of history contrary to the version owned by the CCP was a big no-no. In other words, if you're writing history, and your history is made up, if you're writing history, it has to be made up the CCP way, not somebody else's way. Number seven, questioning the nature of Chinese-style socialism is another big, huge N.O. Do it under the Xi leadership. And for me, in at number eight, internet censorship. Internet censorship in China was significantly stepped up. It's called the Great Firewall of China. Indeed, Xi has taken a very strong stand to control internet usage inside China, including US government compromised entities such as Google and Facebook, who are heavily restricted. Using internet censorship in the country as part of internet sovereignty for China, Xi has effectively full control of Chinese digital media. In March 2018, the National People's Congress passed a series of constitutional amendments, including, and most importantly and controversially, the removal of term limits for the office of president and vice president. This made Xi the most powerful leader since Mao and leader technically for life. Xi has increased state control over China's economy 
voicing support for China's state-owned enterprises while also supporting the country's private sector. He has, though, increased the role of the Central Financial and Economic Affairs Commission at the expense of the State Council, meaning more central control. His administration made it easier for banks to issue mortgages, increased foreign participation in the bond market, and increased the country's currency, the Rabini, as a global currency, helping it to join the IMF's basket of special drawing rights. Since taking power in 2012, Xi has started a massive overhaul of the People's Liberation Army. The president has also warned that depoliticization of the PLA from the CCP would lead to a collapse similar to that of the Soviet Union. He argues that in the USSR, where the military was depoliticized, separated from the party, and nationalized, the party itself was disarmed. In terms of foreign policy, Xi is a hardcore Chinese nationalist. The president has reportedly taken a hard line on security issues as well as foreign affairs, projecting a more nationalistic and assertive China on the world stage. And I can tell you that China's neighbors will attest to that. Interestingly, though, under Xi, China had also taken a more critical stance on North Korea while trying to improve relations with South Korea. But then, after South Korea bought the U.S. THAAD missile systems, the position reversed overnight. China-Japan relations, which is possibly one of the most important relations in the region, have actually soured under Xi's government. The most thorny issue between the two countries remains the dispute over the Senaku Islands. Xi has called China-U.S. relations in the contemporary world, and I'm quoting him, a new type of great power relations. That said, the relation is very thorny. The U.S. under Obama, Trump, and Biden wasn't great for China. It was horrible. But specifically, Trump was a thorn in President Xi's side. The U.S. has been very critical of China's actions in the South China Sea. For their part, in 2014, Chinese hackers hacked the computer system of the U.S. Office of Personnel Management, resulting in the theft of about 22 million personnel records handled by that office. The U.S. relationship with China is dicey, to say the least. So, trade wars, poking each other diplomatically and in the various high seas and other locations, and also just hacking each other is the hallmark or has been the hallmark of U.S.-China relations. And then it soured further when Donald Trump became president of the U.S. in 2017. Indeed, since 2018, the U.S. and China has been engaged in an escalating trade war. In 2019, Xi told Russian news agency TASS that he was worried about the tensions between the U.S. and Iran. He later told his Iranian counterpart, Hassan Rouhani, during an SEO meeting that China would promote ties with Iran regardless of what the U.S. sanctions regime would do. Unlike under Hu, Xi has cultivated strong relations with Russia, particularly in the wake of the Ukraine crisis in 2014. He has developed a personally strong relationship with President Vladimir Putin of Russia that secures China's north 
access to resources, including, importantly, energy and food. All to say that China's foreign policy is about supply chain security and also about weathering U.S. and Western sanctions. In April 2015, satellite imagery revealed that China was rapidly constructing an airfield on the Fiery Cross Reef in the Spartley Islands of the South China Sea. There are other islands too that the PLA now controls or has military presence on. China probably, in my view, feels that it solves multiple problems by pushing itself further out of the South China Sea. It pushes its boundary a little further afield. So aggressors like the US, for example, would have to fight China in the South China Sea and not on Chinese shores. It would also keep people like the Japanese, etc., who could be provocative in the future, they'd keep them occupied and busy somewhere else. So the whole thing is not just about resources, but it's about supply chains, and it's really about pushing its own borders further out. Fight me over here, not over here. A hallmark of President Xi's policies is what's known now as the BRI, or the Belt and Road Initiative. It was originally called One Belt, One Road, but it became BEI pretty quickly. And this was launched by Xi in September and October of 2013 on visits to Kazakhstan and Indonesia. Xi made the announcement for the initiative while in Kazakhstan and called it a golden opportunity. And a golden opportunity it was for so many countries. People jumped on it from Africa, from Asia, from Europe, from Latin America. People were keen. Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Brazil. This was, in air quotes, free money for infrastructure, free money for food, free money for trade. This was the excess money that's flying around in China ripe for investment that would create jobs inside of China and outside of China. It was a win-win. And unlike Western countries, this came with no strings attached, no lecturing, no one telling you, well, you are a so-and-so ex-colonial and you should focus on human rights and climate change. No, it was just investment and that was it. And it was too attractive for many countries. They jumped on it. Indeed, BRI has been called Xi's signature project. It was so extensive that people have been writing and talking about it for many years. And there is some literature out there that you should really check out. But I'm not going to go into that. But I will go into some examples of this uh, initiative because it is so expansive. A new Eurasian land bridge was built, for example, which runs from Western China to Western Russia through Kazakhstan and includes the Silk Road Railway through China's Xinjiang Autonomous Region, Kazakhstan, Russia, Belarus, Poland, and Germany. Six massive is another. The China Central Asia West Asia Corridor, which essentially runs from Western China to Turkey. Then there's the China Indochina Peninsula Economic Corridor, which has run from Southern China all the way to Singapore. The Trans-Himalayan Multidimensional Connectivity Network, a mouthful, running from Nepal, which is landlocked, to a land-linked country. And then the big one, 
the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which is also classified as something close to the Belt and Road, but ultimately something around a $62 billion collection of infrastructure projects throughout China. I mean, in some ways, China owns Pakistan at this point. The BRI is so prominent that it's easier to outline countries not involved in it than a part of it. Notable exceptions do include the US and India. Notable inclusions include key European Union countries. China has thus become the single biggest trade partner for most of the world. And unlike the US, they come, as I said, with no lectures on wokish topics like human rights or climate change. The one string they do have, though, is debt. When things are going well, life is good. When things go sour, then the debts add up, and China is often accused of debt-trapping countries. Xi, by the way, also tackled COVID-19, is a zero-sum policy. Xi had a zero-COVID policy, even well after much of the rest of the world had moved on from the pandemic. Xi remained on COVID. That, however, is a topic for another day. But what it tells us is the mindset of an authoritarian Xi Jinping or an authoritarian CCP or authoritarian China, whereas in other parts of the world, things move quickly and they can change and they, people can admit mistakes. In an authoritarian Chinese society, it is not the case. In 43 years, 1979 to 2022, China went from a post-Mao developing country to a state that can claim to be a serious great power and stands in a powerful spot to become the biggest power in the world by 2035 or 2040 if current projections continue. Yes, there are headwinds, and they are serious headwinds. I will name a few right now. First would be the one-child policy, because in my view, it will lead to a decline in demographics. This is good eventually, but growth will slow and reverse as population falls. This also has an impact on the military because, simply put, each family has only one child, no spares as it was. Also, there has been, a, as a result of the one-child system, more males than females. Again, that is a problem. Now, that said, less people is a longer-term benefit. And even a drop by, say, 300 million people still keeps China firmly in the 1 billion population mark. Secondly, I've mentioned this already, but to reiterate, zero COVID policy itself and the inability to be self-critical can cause its own economic growth to slow down and indeed go backwards. Something like a lockdown when everyone else is open only makes China a less reliable trade partner. Thirdly, Xi, as president for life, should he want to stay in that role for life? Well, ultimately, it creates succession problems and also puts a stick in a system that brought in capable leaders every 10 years who could reflect and ultimately change course as needed. With these new rules, that becomes harder because if Xi dies in office, we could see some serious instability. There are additional risks too, more unseen than the three I just mentioned. One is that unlike, say, the US, Russia, China, even Pakistan, 
China has no real battle experience. Its military hasn't really faced the hard problem of casualties, resource depletion, or how to function when you actually lose a war. Another is the unbelievable ability to annoy and poke its neighbors. If, and possibly when, a conflict does arise, then these neighbors may be morally supportive, but practically absent. Finally, the economy is too dependent on the US dollar or euro. These are high-risk currencies ripe for sanctions at a drop of a hat. And you know all that debt and foreign reserves that China holds? Holds it in the West, no less? It's meaningless. It's meaningless when they can be just sanctioned, but it's also meaningless when they can just be confiscated, aka stolen, at will. All that debt and all that hard-earned foreign exchange means little to nothing. Now, all said, these last four decades have been truly remarkable. Just the lifting of so many millions of people out of not just poverty, but out of abject poverty is worth celebrating. Amazing stuff. Thank you once again for listening to the podcast. If you liked it, please subscribe, comment, and tell other people too. All the best. Speak to you all soon. Bye for now.